Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Radio Islam. I am your host, Saad bin Abdullah, along here with my co-host, Aydin Anwar. Say assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs> and today we have a very special guest here with us today. Uh, his name is Sheikh Yusuf Rios. Welcome. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. How's everything? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Good to have you here. <laughs> so, uh, what have you been up to? I know. I think you've been you've been on the show before, have you? I've been on the show long distance with Tariq Imam Tariq. Okay. Yes. Alright. So this, then, this is your first time here. This first time in the okay. studio. Yeah. Okay. Mashallah. Mashallah. Alhamdulillah. Cool. Cool. Um, so yeah. So I know recently you're uh, you're in Puerto Rico, and uh, I know there's been a lot going on over there. There's been uprisings and. Um, the, the governor stepped down, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so uh, give us a little bit of background about what, what exactly was going on. Well, actually, you know, to be more politically correct, you know, the government was forced, the governor was forced out. Okay. Uh, by the people. Uh, so the, the situation now is, according to some of the analysts, mm-hmm. is that there's a constitutional crisis. Sure. Some people are saying that that's a little strong. But the person that has been selected, which is uh, Pierre Luisi, okay, he's been selected to to come into the position. There's no way that he can come into the position because the electoral process is not in place. Okay. So the systems of checks and balances is is disrupted at this point. People that were supposed to be in place to kind of put him in place, they're they've left. They've resigned. Okay. And, okay. uh, so Very that's the that's the the situation that they're in now is that they have, you know, a, a person that was selected by the fiscal control board that was appointed by the U.S. to handle the debt over Puerto Rico. Uh, they, basically, he's their man. He's a Wall Street dude. Okay. And so, uh, at the same time, he acknowledges that there may be some issues in him his coming into power, but he's also part of the same political party. Mm-hmm. That the governor, you know, was was heading. Sure. So they they're basically like a. Some people like to say that they're like a mafia, that's controlling the island. Wow. Okay. So it's like, like an oligarchy, basically. It is an oligarchy. <laughs> right. Right. Um, now you were there after the governor uh, stepped down. No, I was there or, when he stepped down. When he stepped down. I'm sorry. That's right. Um, so how were the protests? I mean, what was? I mean, what are, what are the? Um, what were the main or the primary demands of the people? Well, the the general consensus among those who are most active mm-hmm. is that the the uh, the system is problematic as is. So one of the demands is for the money that was stolen to be returned because there was a corruption scandal. So that's one of the demands. The second demand is that uh, the fiscal control board leave out. Uh, and, and no longer have a hold over the people that the debt be canceled out. Another demand is addressing the uh, Jones Act, which is the Jones Act is a colonial act that governs the economic activity over the island and kind of chokes it out. So what Puerto Rico gives to the U.S. in money wise is more than what they bring in as a state. And when so was the uh, when was this act? Um, it was in, it was it was in uh, the 1800s. The 1800s, okay. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's very fascinating. I personally too much, uh, personally don't know too much uh, about uh, the history of Puerto Rico, but um, I'm definitely glad to have you here so you can elaborate more on that and tell us more about that. Um, so, and, and you just got back 
Monday night, is that correct? I just got back yesterday. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Um, uh, how were your interactions with the people when you were in Puerto Rico? What, uh, you know, what did you witness? What were the things that you experienced? I, I think that, you know, because uh, I'm part of the Three Puerto Rican Imams Project, so we went there to do relief work after Hurricane Maria, and so there was a, a massive renewal, you know, of the collective spirit. So that has continued for the past two years or so. And so what you see with a lot of people is a lot of the, you know, the, the generation that's here, uh, which is called the millennials, and uh, some of the older generation, they're actually full of hope, full of enthusiasm, full of ready to work. Yeah. You know, they're ready to get on the ground and rebuild. So some people clearly want independence mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico. Other people kind of want stability, right? right? So the people, they're, they're, they're very angry because this process is continuing yeah. with this new leader that is, is not totally in, but it's just as a, a placeholder right now, the people feel that it's an extension of the colonial legacy. Yeah. And so there's an anger that's there and there's also this spirit of we can make we can make this happen like we will mm. we'll make this happen you know I'll just stay out of the way yeah and so it is it is it's a problematic situation right now i mean there there were if it if it were not for some constrictions that were placed on the governor he would sent the national guard on the people right so so you have that tension that energy yeah. everybody in the country is of the mind that something needs to change Sure. And, uh, so, but you have those who, of course, they have more to lose. Mm -hmm. You know, so those who have more to lose, it becomes a class issue. Yeah. yeah. They kind of want things to balance itself out. And then you have those who don't have it. Sure. Um, so, so what was your, the purpose of you going to Puerto Rico? My purpose was we had, we had uh, you know, we were involved in Dao activity there. Uh, but our purpose was also to support the protests. You know, I, I went and I joined the protests uh, at the Fortaleza and uh, myself and the three Puerto Rican imams. So the idea was, you know, to also see what's the condition of the Muslims and their development. What is it that's needed as far as the Dao is concerned and also to support, you know, the effort uh, for change. So there's a large Muslim population in Puerto Rico? There's a, uh, a significant Muslim population. There's a significant Muslim population. Um, so, with the rise uh, of the demonstrations and everything, have you, did you notice any, like, were there any particular, like, political groups or particular ideologies that are being pushed uh, in the demonstrations? Are people more pro-democratic? Are they socialist? Are they this or that? Or? Well, when it came to the issue of the governor, this is similar to the Iranian revolution, mm -hmm. that it was a popular uh, revolution, and it w meaning that, the, that you had a cross you know, they be of different cross section of different groups. So they cross party lines on that particular issue. The issue of the issue of corruption and the issue of um, yeah. the stepping down of the of the governor. Mm -hmm. Right. That was that that was pretty much it. But you have you have some you have different groups that are there. You have you know some feminist trajectories. You know, independence trajectories. Sure. You have status trajectories. But the loudest is the voice of the people that right now what's happening in Puerto Rico is the idea to stay away from the political parties and emphasizing those stark differences and focus on issues. Very interesting. Um, just like Lachit for elaborating on that. Um, what do you hope to see in Puerto Rico? 
Well, I mean, what I hope to see in Puerto Rico is that uh, I hope to see the removal of the Jones Act mm -hmm. and addressing of the colonial situation and to, and to actually bring the issue right back to the people. And if they want independence, you know, then that will entail that the U.S. would have to pay reparations out and move in with that process. Because right now, the reality of the situation is that the status of Puerto Rico is, is not legal on an international law level because it's a, it's a colony. It's a colony. It's so, a colony. I know people refer to it as it's a territory of the yeah. United States. So, Can you explain the Jones Act for the audience? The Jones Act in general, uh, without going into a lot of details, it was a colonial act that was placed on the economic activity of, of Puerto Rico. And what that means is that Puerto Rico doesn't have economic sovereignty. So anything that comes into Puerto Rico or, go, or pretty much comes in, has to go through, through Florida and then come onto U.S. ships, hmm. and then uh, it comes to Puerto Rico. So yeah. it's taxed multiple times, wow. it, and then you know when, once it gets in, uh, then it's, it's legal for it to be sold or whatever. And then hmm. the U.S. has prohibited Puerto Rico from being able to take over its own economic activities, and we saw that very clearly. Uh, even if it was something as simple as receiving aid during the time of the hurricane, yeah. Venezuela wanted to come in and bring aid. And they stopped. And that was disputed. Yeah. Wow. And so there was so any ships coming into that area, you know, pretty much were blocked off from from other countries. They they could have resolved the the crisis pretty fast, but because of the Jones Act, it's kind of a military economic act. Those waters are claimed to be U.S. you know sovereign territory, so you can't right. come in without permission. Right. So the Jones Act pretty much chokes out the economic activity of the island. You know, the, so the island can't be on its own in that regard. It can't do economic activity. Right, it's not outside. economically independent, right? Yes, it's not. It can't export, and it can't properly import. You know, right. with, without it going through those processes that have been put in it's place for the U.S. Wow. Um, uh, you also mentioned that you were initially there for Dawa efforts. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about the uh, Puerto Rican Muslim community. Is it a growing community? How? Well established is it? How old is it? Um, it's, is it fairly it, new? It's a, uh, well, Islam has been in the Caribbean for a long time. Islam right. has been in the Caribbean for hundreds of years in various ways, right? It, it, after Andalus, there was an influx of Muslims, and actually the Muslims had aligned themselves, in specific in Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic, with the indigenous peoples, and they had engaged in uprisings against the, the Spanish. That was during the, uh, basically the... Uh, the fall of Al-Andalus and the and during the time of the Inquisition and so on and so forth, right. the Spanish colonial forces they took over many parts of Latin America, and so that was the first kind of you know visible appearance of Islam. Some people say that it was it was more older than that, but in specific when we start coming to the later period, there was a large influx of Palestinians in specific that came into Puerto Rico, yes. and so they came you know when Palestine was having issues. Right. And so they, they've been there for a while, multiple generations, and many of them have had actually lost their Islam. And they well, were... They the, were the Palestinians that were yeah, migrated. Okay. Many of them had lost their Islam. They, they knew that they were like, they consider, you know, even the Puerto Ricans usually call them Arabs. Sure. You know, they, but they really don't associate yeah. the religion. And so then there was a sheikh that came right now, his name um, it doesn't come to mind, he was from Syria. And he came and he did a lot of dawah effort with them and started kind of reshaping the community. So there's right. a number of masajid that have been built the ground up mm -hmm. um, as masjids. 
And, but two of the most active masjids are Montehiedra, which is close to San Juan, and Vega Alta. Mm -hmm. Those are the two most active ones. And so, and so you've had a number of Puerto Ricans that have come in as well from the island. Not as, as many as we've liked, uh, as we like to see, but they did come in. And part of the issue of the deterrent was the cultural factor. Because the Palestinians, when they went there, they kind of went there and they cocooned themselves. Sure. And so they became more culturally oriented and not Dawa oriented. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of stopped the community from growing because Puerto Rico is in the situation that is in, a lot of Puerto Ricans resist that cultural change because it's a colonial yeah. situation. Right. So people try to maintain whatever it is that they have of their of their culture. So those two things have become a problem in the Dawa. But so in this trip we kind of were reconciling some of those issues <coughs> to see how it is that we can move forward, you know, and kind of unlock Mm -hmm. Some of those problems that have, uh, you know, been issues in the Dow itself. Right. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I uh, was reading an article actually uh, about a couple of years ago, two years ago or so, on Al Jazeera, um, on the uh, growing Muslim community in Cuba. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was really fascinating, considering the fact how, you know, under the Castro administration, uh, religion was restricted, and only now things are starting to uh, loosen up a little bit more. Um, do you think that any of that uh, has somewhat of an effect, like in other countries around Cuba as well, like Puerto Rico and other countries in, in the Caribbean? Or The Dominican Republic has its own community. Haiti has its own community. They interact. Uh, I think that right now the, the situation overall is that there is a discussion on what does Islam mean in Latin America mm -hmm. and in, in Latino culture in, yeah. in, overall that what does it mean so I think that you know the growth of Muslims in the Caribbean itself especially when they start going back and they see some sort of legacy there yeah uh, it does have an impact you know the the stronger that you have you know the strong community that you have in the closer region it, it makes it a lot easier to be able to the function like in right. Venezuela, there's a community, and yeah. Trinidad, there's a community. Yeah, right. And, and so those communities are stronger communities. Sure. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, any thoughts? I <laughs> you look, you look, you look curious, and you look. At no, I'm just. I'm honestly, I don't know much. I personally don't know much about Puerto Rico, and um, so it's and it's my first time meeting a Puerto Rican imam. So I'm just kind of processing a lot of what you're saying. <laughs> um, so I, I was just wondering more about your personal life, about like you know what brought you here to the states and like how you've like remained close. I mean, tied to the Puerto Rican community here in the states and especially the Muslim Puerto Rican community. Um, and what you're well, I, w I was born here. My grandparents came here because of economic reasons, uh, and part of the agreements that were made with the Puerto Rican government pushed a lot of Puerto Ricans out. Uh, and so I was of that wave, which we were the first generation, right? But uh, we were the first generation children of those who came out because of political economic necessity. And so I, w I grew up in a pretty, my grandparents especially, were very strong and adamant that you don't, you know, you don't lose your culture. But of course, when you grow up here, you know, you are, right. there's yeah. always that negotiation piece that takes place. And so for me, it's been a long process. I, when I became Muslim, I've been Muslim maybe 20 years or something now. Sure. And so it, it has been a long negotiation process. And I think within the last few years, you know, maybe five years or so, uh, it, it's been a lot more 
intensive kind of what does this mean as far as uh, building identity. I went through that whole process of you kind of just lose yourself and you kind of try to remake yourself, right, to kind of going back to your own origins and trying to work that out. So, so my connection with the community, especially the Puerto Rican community, uh, got super stronger as a Muslim with the Hurricane Maria. Uh, that kind of just going back as a Muslim to help, you know, uh, and to be in that process. Not only that, the Muslim community gave a lot of support economically for that. Yeah. Either because of the ties that people have, especially the Palestinian community, they have a lot of ties. Um, and just in general, people were very supportive uh, of of giving us aid, myself and uh, the uh, three Puerto Rican members, Wesley and Daniel, to do work there so that 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 brought that up but i was already doing work in the community specific in the latino dial more like uh, on the one-on-one and in the you know even the uh i had went to texas for a short period of time and dealing with other imams and so on and so forth strategizing but you know the more organized efforts have been one of the reasons why there's a direct tie back into the community trying to organize the dial a little more and see what people need. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, that's it's really interesting that uh, you bring that up. It's really interesting that you bring that up. Uh, I remember last time we spoke, um, you talked about uh, Muslims needing to um, invest in their own communities. Um, and I thought that was really incredible. You were talking about different political and social movements in the Middle East um, and, uh, uh, and why some of these movements uh, seem to be relatively uh, successful more than others. Um, and it kind of goes back to the idea of investing in people, um, giving back to people, uh, providing for people. Um, uh, what is your, you know, uh, g- given you know the recent situation, the, the uprisings, the hurricane, um, how can or what can Muslims here in the United States uh, do to, you know, help uh, uh, bring relief to Puerto Rico in whatever way that they can. I mean, I'm, honestly, there's the direct mode right now. We're involved in a lot of projects. One of those projects is to kind of work in the agricultural sector. That needs economic support. There's no doubt about that. The other thing is to uh, is to have a sensitivity. You know, I think the sensitivity becomes important to create an environment in which there's support. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? We may, sure. as a community, not be able to solve every issue, but when there's that sensitive, sensitivity creates a culture of solidarity. Yeah. That's extremely important in this in this climate because once there's solidarity, that gives a certain type of energy, which even people themselves find their own resources, especially emotional, spiritual resources, to be able to move forward. Right. But those are you know those are the levels you know of people being open to support those types of projects. Uh, that are there, you know, that are involved in helping the people. And what a lot of Muslims don't understand is that the, that level of da'wah is much more impactful than trying to convert something. Sure, sure. You know, people, it leaves such an impression upon people that they themselves search out Islam from their own hearts. Right. Versus you coming and you trying to persuade yeah. And the commitment is as not opposed that. to you know engaging in like polemical and theological right. debates and whatnot. Right, 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 and that's something that helped us a lot greatly when we went through Hurricane Maria. There was no, there was no tabletop dawah, none of that. It was just 
what do you need? We're here to help you. Right. They knew that we were Muslims. Yeah. We didn't speak a lick about Islam. After we were leaving, people were saying Allah. You know, they were they were saying Allah's name on their own. You know, they were praying for us. You know, they were just, you know, open to the whole thing. Even with the protest issue, with the protest issue that took place recently, you know, uh, people in the community, they saw that the Muslims, and they openly acknowledged that the Muslims have solidarity with us. They're supporting us. Right, and so that that's kind of the way to support. I think by having that sense of sensitivity, and that it opens up to solidarity, emotional solidarity, and the material yeah. solidarity. Yeah, for sure. Well, that kind of reminds me of when you were talking about how people love like going to Islam on their own, or mentioning Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala on their own. Reminds me of how like at least within the Uyghur community. So I'm ethnically Uyghur. I don't know if you heard about the Muslims yeah. that are in concentration camps yes. occupied by China. So um, I noticed that a lot of people, in for, when I was doing field work in Turkey, that a lot of Uyghurs who were never religious at all, all, all of a sudden were turning to God because this is the one way to find relief and, and to cope with the trauma and depression that they were going through. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's ama it amazes me how, like, you know, it's almost like Allah has a plan for everything, you know, whatever the disaster is. There always seems to be a lot of wisdom behind what happens because oftentimes people are turned to the religion, um, turned back to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala in that process. Yeah, <laughs> Subhanallah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really amazing the the effect that uh, spirituality, generally speaking, in Islam more specifically, obviously, uh, can have on people, and especially in times of crisis. Um, and of course, I mean, as our as we know from the Islamic tradition, that we should always be thankful to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. And we should always invoke Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even in times of ease, uh, as opposed right. to just uh, you know invoking His name conveniently when uh, uh, in dire need. Um, yeah, subhanAllah. And being involved as well, like you know, there's actually a big discussion taking place mm -hmm. about the whether Muslims are effective. Yeah. Uh, in today's time, a massive discussion taking place at least in my circle on this issue, and some people are just saying, "Yeah, Islam is the solution, dude." You know, when people say, hold on, it's like, this is utopian now. Sure. You know what I'm saying? If we look at the reality of where things have been, you know, uh, the Muslims are not necessarily, you know, it's not working out for the Muslims. Okay. So the thing, is, the thing is to learn how to be effective as Muslims and come up with solutions versus just thinking we have it going, you know, just because we're Muslims, our problems are going to be solved. Mm. You know, just because we're Muslims that we automatically have the answers. Sometimes we don't have the answers. Sometimes we're looking for the answers. Sure. Sometimes we go into solidarity relationships with others, so that we can achieve, you know, our our, our goal. Whether it's the Muslims oppressed, you know, within the Chinese areas, you know, we don't have a clear answer to that. Right. You know what I'm saying? We we're just we're trying to work that out. Right. So our, just because we're Muslims doesn't mean that we're going to work that out naturally. And I think that that becomes the issue that we have to learn how to take our iman. And translate that into a real yeah. situation in which people are going through, yeah. uh, and, and work that out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That we have principles and we have the energy, we have the spirit, right. but we don't always have the ready-made answer. And right. just because we're Muslims, it's not going to, uh, right. you know, get us out of the dilemmas. Right. We oftentimes tend to. Huh? <laughs> I think we we romanticize our own religion in that regard. Oftentimes. So if you follow Islam, everything will be. Perfect. But it's like no, you gotta work hard, and you're gonna yeah. face the reality of what this dunya is gonna face. Yeah. Uh, you know, what this dunya is gonna throw at you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and like just like understanding how to utilize our resources properly, so that we can kind of you know really bring about like substantial change. 
um, as opposed to just simply, you know, referring back to you know, the days of the Khilaf or the, the Salaf, or the, you know, kind of going back and like overly romanticizing. This is something that I see in the Muslim community a lot, or at least I used to. I mean, I'm not so sure uh, whether or not that people are still think yeah. that way today but this um, is why the you know, this is why I'm opposed to kind of being you know in this society they come up with a lot of labels for every generation yeah and I'm I'm opposed to labeling this younger generation as the millennials all they're kind of lost because I don't see that at all sure I see that you know that they actually are reorienting themselves and they're challenging the system as it is you know so I think that that becomes important to have that uh, that hope in people and and uh, and help them to use the resources. Sure. Right. Whoever they are. Right. You know, we're not going. We're not going to. We're not coming to save your people, right? But it's our responsibility to support your people, right? right? But you know, at a certain point, you have to kind of work through your own struggles with our solidarity and support. And I think that sometimes we we miss that point, and sometimes we need the support. Yeah, like we we need international monitors saying there's something <laughs> right. going on over right. here. Right. We're not, you know, because we may not be the ones that are. Yeah, you know, are alert to that. Right. Yeah, I mean, subhanallah. Even like earlier earlier today, we were at a demonstration for Kashmir, and uh, you know, we're trying to bring attention to what's been going on. I mean, it's literally just everything kind of spun out of control overnight, and. Uh, we spontaneously organized this protest uh, yesterday, um, and you know, and, and subhanAllah, uh, here we are trying to like mobilize our own communities to bring awareness to these types of issues. What do you th what, what's your feeling on that? I mean, on the whole way, on the whole process of how we mobilize? We organize? Yeah. 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 It, it, mobilization is that last stage, right? right? But right. just the organization and the willingness and... Yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> this requires an elaborate answer. I mean, there's really no. And I don't think there's any one particular answer to this question either. Um, I think it really, it's, it really depends on the community. Now, each community is different. Each community has different needs, and and, and the way in which you um, go about mobilizing the, the communities to to bring about substantial change to whatever situation it is that they're facing, uh, I think is also different, and also requires different resources. And so. Um, you know, but but I think I think I mean encouragement is is a large part of it, right? We need to learn how to before we can mobilize, encourage people uh, uh, to kind of you know be more actively engaged. This is the, that was the, that's the point that actually I was right. <laughs> so, so you know, it's like, and, but I think and that in and of itself has been a challenge for for Muslims, and I think especially in this country in particular as well here in the United States, um, is kind of why do you think that's the case? <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'd like, I'd like to add that like I think when it comes to being part of issues that people care about, it really requires like some type of attachment or like an emotion with yeah. that cause, right? So I know for people who, you know, would claim to be a quote-unquote apolitical or don't want to get involved with going to protests or whatever, whatever the form of activism that entails, there just isn't that connection between them and that cause, right? And there, there needs to be that, that empathy or right. the drive, right? right? So if you're from the Puerto, Puerto Rican community and your people are facing X, Y, Z, then you're going to definitely feel the pain of your own people. But if I'm divorced from this issue of yours, then, like, what's my incentive to go out? Other than, like, oh, yeah, like, you should help out, but, like, there needs to be that inner drive, right? So right. I always suggest that if people can, they should be, like, you know, making the effort to listen to stories and really like put into perspective what this means for other people. 
right? And how, especially as Muslims, this is literally like our duty, it's our obligation to be going out and, and you know, fighting against injustice. So I know for me with the Uyghur community, you know, it's not until a lot of people, this is what I've witnessed within our, within my personal community, is like it wasn't until people started to have their own parents detained in concentration camps when they started to become involved in politics, right? Because they then their whole goal became, I want to release my parents and all, obviously the rest of the people, but until that, before that point, they were just like, oh no, I'm not going to be involved. I'm not going to be involved. I'm not going to go to protests. I'm not, you know, it's right. not my, it's just not my thing. Like there's no incentive. And so there's like, you, a, there's a privilege say, to would that. Would you say there's apathy in that or no? Or that's too strong of a word? Sorry, can you say that one more time? Would you say that uh, that's, you know, there's an apathetic state or that's, is that too strong of a No, I, I definitely think for some time, for a longest time, that was definitely the case. I think right now it's a little shifting now because the Uyghur situation is like really extreme to the point where like now we have, you know, millions of people in, in camps or prisons and there's not a single Uyghur who I've spoken to in diaspora who doesn't have at least one family member or relative. Can, can I ask you a question about that? So, what, yeah. so the Uyghur community, is that how you say it properly? Because everybody says Uyghur. I know. You know? Uyghur. Uyur, yeah. Uyur. So, would you say that uh, what is the connection? Because actually, the Puerto Ricans are going through this whole thing too now. What does it mean to be from the diaspora? Right. You know, what is the connection? You know, what is the responsibility? Is there two different identities? You know, is there one identity with different experiences? <laughs> yeah, for me, so I mean, I was born and raised in America, right? So, but I'm also an ethnic Uyghur. And right now, what China is carrying out is effectively you know, a cultural genocide. And it's very obvious with their attempts to um, get rid of the Uyghur culture, get rid of the Uyghur religion by literally brainwashing and torturing people to basically become atheists and to pledge their allegiance to the Communist Chinese Party. Um, they're banning the Uyghur language in, in schools and workplaces. Um, even it's and, and uh, like even all the all the cultural symbols are being erased. You can't find Arabic scripts even in Beijing, which is not the East Turkestan. Is, which is not our part of our homeland is also like you see an Arabic script being erased from restaurants um, you see this massive campaign to essentially surveil and um, and control people to the level of basically what they call what they call is human re-engineering so for me as, as a member of diaspora it's really like honestly it's really hard because I, I struggle with knowing that even if like this cultural genocide were to happen, I think naturally, like my my future generation, like maybe my future children, inshallah, like I don't know how much Uyghur identity will be kept within them because even with it, wait, you know, I speak better English than I speak better Uyghur, right? And that's a sad reality. Like honestly, I I almost sometimes get ashamed of myself because I'm like, yeah, I can speak proper English, but like I can and I can have conversational Uyghur, but that's because my parents spoke it at home. But I can't, you know, speak on a very formal, professional level, and that's the goal that I want. But now, it's like, what what's going to happen to my future kids? Unless I make the active effort to make sure that their culture is, is preserved, right? And and, and China is already making this effort to erase our people, erase our whole identity, and then it's like I'm all, I'm almost exacerbating that by being in the country in the first place, by being in the states, right? Because and yeah, obviously we have more privilege in the sense that. Yes, we can make the effort here to at least preserve it and do what we can. Because even if I was there, like it would still be like similar in the sense that they would be forced, they would be forcing Uyghurs to become Han, which is essentially what they're doing right now. 
Um, but it's like either way, it's like we're we're slowly dying as as a culture. And inshallah, I'm hoping that we resist that. But sometimes I'm like, oh my god, like I you know I oftentimes catch myself speaking English to my siblings, right? When I should in reality be speaking, trying my best to preserve the Uyghur language. Or and there's some things that I know for sure I'll keep that tradition at home, like until I die, inshallah. But like it's not, you know, for me it's just like I'm worried about like three four generations down the line. It's probably going to be like, oh, my great-grandkid is going to be like, oh, yeah, like, my great-grandma was Uyghur, blah, 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 and no one's going to even know what that means. And I said Uyghur is on purpose just to, you know... Emphasize the point. <laughs> make, make, make fun of the fact that everyone calls us Uyghur. But, like, you know, it's like, oh, and it becomes, like, just, just like this, oh, I'm, like, 50%. Because I don't know, you never know who your grandkids... We don't know what, you know, our kids are, or who we're going to marry, like, what that's going to look like in the future. So that's just, like, one thing that I was thinking about in terms of preserving but obviously there has been there have been a lot of efforts in the diaspora to actively preserve our culture and our language and make our voices heard um do you think that changes the marriage dynamics as well oh yeah for sure in my community um you know especially like let's say Uyghurs in america i know of aunts and uncles who are only wanting their kids to marry Uyghurs. even my parents are like our our people our culture is being erased we should try our best to marry Uyghurs, but uh, alhamdulillah, my parents are a little more open-minded where they're, they realize how hard it is to find someone who is both religious and and um, is compatible and also Uyghur. Um, so they've been a little more open-minded, but like I know this is like a real stressor in our community and I have friends who are like, oh my god, my parents want me to marry an Uyghur, and there's such a limited number here that it's like so hard to find someone that they'd be a good match for. So so then from there, if it's like not Uyghur, then the person has to be Turkic. So like it can span other countries, but like if the Turkic identity is there, there's at least some maintenance of culture. Um, so there's definitely that pressure though. So But if, if someone marries completely outside of the culture, it's, it's then like, oh man, like our grandkids are going to be half Uyghur, half this. And <coughs> now we're really gone. Like that type of, that there's that type of mentality. And it's very valid, right? Like it's... Survival, yeah. Yeah, it's a, you know, yeah. and it's like, what's going to happen to their children? Like, you know, I'm sure their children probably not going to really find Uyghur, they'll probably find some random other person, and there will right. be like a court of Uyghur, and then just goes down, down, like, just the percentage right. gets less and less. Because right. already, like, from the get-go, the population, the Uyghur population here in diaspora isn't as large, right? So. Yeah, I think, I mean, this, yeah, this is, it's, it's most definitely a valid concern. I think, I think it's valid concern that you find across, like, many different cultures. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I think the pressure just gets like much stronger once you know like there's an active effort oh, by yeah, a government absolutely. to erase your entire people, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm sure the Palestinians may also face that sure, as well, right? Um, but and but like the pro the the problem and also what makes it way harder is also knowing how we have just a few thousand in America, wow. a few thousand Uyghurs, right? Whereas I'm sure the Palestinian community is probably much greater here, so maybe there's a higher chance that they can find another Palestinian if, if that's what they're looking for. Right. Where are Uyghurs primarily concentrated outside of East Turkestan and America? Um, so I would say uh, there's a huge population, um, probably the largest in Central Asia, so the neighboring countries like Kazakhstan, yeah. Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan. Um, and then there's a huge population in Turkey, uh, really deeply concentrated in Istanbul. Um, there's and then there's like the states like the Western Hemisphere, um, DC area is probably the largest population within America, um, and there's like some scattered throughout like Europe basically and Canada and Australia. Um, I don't know of any. It was actually in like South America, but 
I'm sure there would be some. So yeah, yeah we're funny. just kind of scattered, but we're we're, right. we're again our diaspora is not that big. Yeah, so. yeah. It's a problem. We love it easy. Um, speaking of diaspora, I mean, like going back to the comment that you made earlier about Palestinians uh, migrating to like Latin America and like Central America and all that. Um, I've always wondered why that was. Is there like any particular reason as to why like historically Palestinians were drawn to Latin America? From my understanding, there was like a you know there was some there was some ease in people going to certain places. Yeah. Right. That was. Yeah. Wherever they wherever they found ease at, and then there was you know there's the second there's the, also the those who are settled you know they those who find their way first the pioneers and then those who call others to come. You know? Right. Yeah, I always thought that was like really interesting. Subhanallah. <laughs> uh, I never like really looked into it, but. Uh, I guess I'll have some more reading to do in Shalblood. <laughs> um, so last time we also met up, uh, we were talking about um, Muslims in America and uh, understanding how we go about navigating in the uh, two-party system um, and how we kind of understand our place here in this country. Uh, and, you know, because oftentimes what you see nowadays, and especially with the current political and social views that, we, that we're witnessing now, um, you have this dilemma where either Muslims are basically caught between a rock and a hard place and we kind of force ourselves to support either the Republican or Democratic Party. Um, and then with that comes you know, compromising of you know, religious principles and values and whatnot, uh, while at the same time uh, kind of you know detaching ourselves from that and kind of trying to cultivate our own sense of um, uh, uh, political uh, placement, I guess you could say. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? It's a complicated issue. I mean, it's not a, it, it's not an easy issue to deal with because you have the structural politics, which, you know, come back to the party system. And then you have what goes on behind closed doors or other spheres of influence. But there's no doubt that others, when we start studying different communities, have been locked into that. We talked about that before, like yeah. the Catholics, how they kind of a lot of, in a lot of ways, many of them went right, but in their social teachings, is is you know they're for the poor, some of the things that the left champions, and it's not necessarily when we talk about right and left, it's not necessarily the case that we're talking about like uh, the Democrats and the Republicans yeah. or the liberals or whatever. It's just. There's a certain way of looking at society, sure. right? And so people have aligned themselves, you know, with the conservative camp out of fear of certain moral issues, right? It's al there's al almost like this automatic assumption yeah. that, the, that the right is moral. Right. Right. Is that primarily because people, or they kind of view themselves as more religiously inclined and that sort of thing, or? I think that, I think that that's the way that the marketing for the for the Republicans have has been on that type of yeah. platform, right? But we know that that's not necessarily the reality, yeah. you know, from uh, from behind the scenes, so to speak, sure. or in policy. I find that interesting when you say people find the right to be moral, because I actually was thinking the opposite, where I yeah. think the left is where are the ones who seen as moral, because they're. I guess it also they, depends on your definition of moral. Right, exactly. <laughs> but like I think from the social justice side, right? Yeah, from the social justice side, at least with my experience, like yeah. I don't know, being in college with these social justice circles, like yeah. if you don't support X Y Z, you're like, oh, like you're you're a 
you know, ex-phobic or whatever it yeah. is, right? And so then you're seen as, like, in a way immoral. Like, where are your morals? You're automatically you, dumped. Exactly. Yeah. Like, why don't you care about these people that should be Yeah, it's more about? socially, it's more socially oriented. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas the Republicans, you know, have that tendency of my morality is personal. You know, it's a, that, that's, I think that's the difference. I agree with you on this. That's why I was saying some people confuse the left. There, There's that component of justice. I mean, I don't think that the Muslims... We have come to terms with this ourselves. You know, this is part of the part of the problem. Also, when we start looking at places like Puerto Rico, like Puerto sure. Rico gives a lot of solidarity to the Palestinian issue. Yeah, but you won't find many Palestinians reciprocating reciprocating right. there. And part of that issue is because of the re repercussions. What that means politically, what that means yeah. legally for them, yeah. whether it's being monitored or whatever it is. And so I think that that's the you know that's the issue that the reciprocation, you know, we, we're not understanding what that means in this society, right? Yeah. So, so we don't want to reciprocate with some groups now because we don't want to be associated with right. them, right. you know, as far as their moral beliefs, right? And so that's why you're finding, because I, I, what I'm seeing is a right turn among some of the Muslims. You know, there's a, there's a turn towards the right in this name of, well, we don't want to be seen aligned with the LGBT community. Or right. we don't want to see in the line with this group or that group, but all of that at the expense of the justice issue, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happened with the with the Catholics that they aligned themselves with the right, and sp more specifically the Republicans, because of the abortion issue, yeah. And that everything fell apart after you know with their social justice teachings, sure. because of one issue. So they became a one issue people, yeah. And I think that that's what weird was happening to the Muslims, especially since a lot of Muslims are middle class. We're becoming a one-issue people. Yeah. We're just focusing on, well, you know what? And most of the time is what homosexuality is haram. How could we support that? Yeah. That's kind of what I believe that is our situation. So where do you think Muslims should kind of place themselves? between? Like, I know it probably isn't one or the other, but like, how do you think a Muslim should navigate this two-party system? In a, in a healthy way that doesn't compromise our Islamic values. I, I don't think that I don't I, I think that it's dirty. Think I don't think that I don't I think uh, maybe 15 years ago it would it would have been a little more clean, a little more easier yeah. to deal with. I think that now you know there's some hardline issues, whether it's immigration, and you see what how that's working playing itself out with, you know, with ICE and and, yeah. and the way that immigrants are dealt with. You know, I, I think that Muslims need to have a multi-tier strategy and we need to realize that we need to look at each other and it's just like when we encounter each other, we, ha we have to realize this is a work in progress. We may be making mistakes and kind of lower our wings, but it's like, okay, I understand you're taking up that front, I'm taking up this front. Yeah. Somewhere we're going to meet, you know what I'm saying? Even if it seems like we're, we're clashing, but, we, you know, we, we have to meet somewhere. In other words, we have to be pragmatic at this stage, you know, sure. and we're weighing harm and benefit. People don't like that. They say, let's take a hardcore approach, but Muslims don't have the investment in society. They don't have that clout. They don't have that, they don't have that, uh, that capital. history, huh? Social capital. That social capital. Right. They don't have the social capital to just sit back, you know what I'm saying? And say, well, you know, we're doing this for, for society. You know, this is how we're dealing with the political. You know, yeah. we, some of us have taken the I'm not voting for, for different reasons approach right. for, a while, for a while, and we've been kind of 
slowly coming into the political realm because of being forced into it. Not not because it, it it's like you know I think other other groups like maybe your your age range or or your your mentality it's like it's part of faith to be involved in justice. Yeah. Right. That's not that was the African American community had that for a little while with with the split in itself too, like the yeah. apolitical side and the political side. Yeah. But the, after nine eleven, I think uh, the community has still trying is trying to figure out where it stands. Yeah, for sure. Politically. Yeah, and I think yeah we're we're, we're, we're trying to figure it out, and I think we're slowly getting better at it. Um, I think there. I think yeah, there is. I mean, I I think that's why I said I have a lot of hope. And the younger generation and those who, who are from the older generation that have the ability to be flexible. Yeah. But we don't have a strategy. We don't have we don't have strategies. Yeah. I think I think that's one of the primary issues of facing the American Muslim community in particular is that we don't necessarily know how to organize properly and mobilize our own communities. And I think that's part of the most definitely a large part of the struggle. Like, you know, recently uh, there's a professor in Puerto Rico, he, he did a talk earlier this morning. He, he has some law background, yeah. And he has a, he's a professor, and he's he he had a, something that was very awesome. He said, um, "Look, the way that the Constitution is written is in a language where everybody can understand it." Mm -hmm. And he said, "On this particular point, it's clear. You know, you should have the people's input, or whatever." Then he goes on to the point that I want to mention. On he said. To deal with this climate, I compiled this book of a hundred political principles, which anybody could read, right? And so it's a small book; it's not a large read. Yeah. We don't have that type of thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, Andrew March he he compiled Islam and the Liberal Citizen, and it's really the Muslims' opinions from the Muslims on what they think yeah. about the political system: voting, not voting, citizenship. But as far as political activism, okay, we have Dawood Walid. He wrote his sacred activism. Yeah. But we can't just have it's a wonderful book. We can't just have that side, right? Yeah. And then we don't want to bring Linda Sarsour into the discussion mm -hmm. because we feel as though she's too far out. We have to we have to realize that this is not just a theoretical reality that we're dealing with. We're not just dealing with ideas when we talk about the political. Yeah. Yeah. We're dealing with having to understand how power plays are made in the real world. Right. So you have to have experience right. in working with that, right? And so we, we have to try to figure out how we're going to have a, an ideal political philosophy, yeah. right? And, or political principles to guide us. Sure. And then what that means on the ground. Because like I said, it's messy. Yeah. You know, on the ground is messy. So I'll be, I mean, I'll be honest with you, and people may not like me to say this, but for instance, in the, in the case of the... Of, of your community, right? Mm -hmm. So, in your community, so are we, if we're going to get support for that cause from the LGBT community, and that's the only power block that's willing to go on the line, are we just going to say, well, sorry, you know what I'm saying, we can't deal with you? I mean, I'm not trying to put you on the line, you know what I'm saying, but I'm saying that some situations are so, some situations require an alignment. On alignment issues. or coalition, even an align an alignment that the, on and on a value, mm -hmm. not just a coalition to get something done. An alignment on a particular value, mm -hmm. right? And, and some things we have to realize that just because the other person we don't agree with them, that they may not be in alignment on certain values, like human life, 
Sure. We are lying on human life as a value. Sure. Yeah. Not just we're, it's politically convenient for us to get together because we want to achieve a political end. Yeah. There's, an, an, uh, there's an alignment that I'm not going to force my religion on you, right? The LGBT, of course, they're going to be pro that because they don't want people to force their religion on them. Yeah. So that's the thing is that we have to have hard discussions yeah. on what it means to be a free individual yeah. that belongs to a society that's pluralistic. Sure. Mm-hmm. And we have to have discussions on what does it mean to deal with oppression yeah. and what are the various means that we can use or we, we are forced to use to have yeah. to deal with it. I'm not claiming to have the answers, but what I'm saying, yeah. I'm just giving situations of in, in which is messy. That's the yeah. point that I'm saying. Yeah. So going off of that, um, I think many Muslims also might be very apprehensive in, you know, say, forming alliances or coalitions, say, for example, with the LGBTQ community, um, because perhaps some Muslims may feel as though, you know, this kind of liberal trajectory that we're currently witnessing in the current political and social use is kind of being imposed upon uh, society. There's, a, there's like, a, some kind of, like, you know, like, liberal agenda at play here, and I feel like because of that, some Muslims may want to distance themselves from forming those coalitions uh, that perhaps may be necessary to achieve certain objectives? I think I think that the understanding of liberalism is not correct that we okay. have, mm-hmm. right? I don't think we we live in a liberal state, which is yeah. the right of the individual, yeah. right? It, it's basically the primacy of the individual. You know the the economic, you know the the basically economics right rights of the individual. Yeah. So we live, you know, we have to. I think we have to look at the whole concept of you know freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Yeah. That's basically what kind of the liberal reality is about. I think that people are confusing the moral issue. This yeah. is what we keep coming back to, yeah. you know, with with political rights, and so they they collapse the two, right? They collapse the two. the The thing is that you know what are we saying? Are we saying that we don't want to? Basically, we're fighting for our rights. Yeah, of course. This is this is the dilemma now that's taking place in the Middle East. Right. Muslims in the West are fighting for minority rights. Yeah. As Muslims. Yeah. So now. Non-Muslims in the East are fighting for minority rights yeah. as non-Muslims. Yeah. And so that was one of the dilemmas that the scholars have brought about. So now what we're what we're faced with is, are we saying that it's okay for us to have rights, but non-Muslims <laughs> can't have rights because of where they stand morally? Right, right. You get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're in a dilemma in that point. I understand that the Muslims are, are nervous, but we're not involved. Yeah. So I find that I find that to be... I can see someone like Linda Sarsour saying that she's involved. Yeah. I can see her having that fear or whatever. But if the Muslim community is not involved, if there's just one or two people that are involved, yeah. or three people and a few orgs that are involved, because sure. there's only a handful of orgs that are involved politically, right. right? And only a few heads that are involved. Right. I don't see the real concern. You, yeah. you have to get involved and, and formulate a position yeah. from having the experience. Right. Um. And with that, though, oftentimes, and going back to you know, square one, you know, you know, uh, we're only given two options, right? I mean, obviously, there's like this third option, go independent, you know. But when you have, when 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 the power dynamic is monopolized essentially by this two party system, what choice do we have? Right? That's that's the problem, right? So that's the problem that you face within the two party system. Yeah. But that's why we mentioned that. We have to have a multi-tier strategy. The activist has way more flexibility sure. than the politician. The politician is bound, yeah. right, 
to his or her constituency. Yeah. And so that constituency, we don't look at what religion they are, what sure. you know, what they hold in mind. This that in that political room. That's unfortunate, but that's how that game is played. Yeah. You know, they it's a money game in which you owe people certain things. And when you have values or when you speak out on them like AOC or yeah. or the squad or whatever, you see what the response is by the society. Yeah. Right? If you if you use the squad as an understanding of the party system, look at look at the DNC. It looks more right than anything. So the point being is that we have to have multiple strategies. We have to have the activist strategy. We have to have the lobbying strategy. We have to have the media strategy. Right. We have to have the investments at a very, very local level strategy. You know, we have to have supports on multiple levels. There's nobody that's just running their politics yeah. on just depending on a two-party system. Everybody's using spheres of influence. Pooling all the all different tools and resources. All their tools and resources. So that so we have to expect that the polit Muslim that's politician is going to be compromised. Yeah. According and if people want an Islamic state, they're not going to get it. This is a pluralistic society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you're gonna have to that doesn't mean you completely agree with, with, with where other people are at on everything. Right, of course. But you're gonna have to be able to have some sort of political tolerance. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah political tolerance. I think that's 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 a whole other issue in and of itself that we uh, can uh, definitely explore uh, another time. Um, but yeah, it's been an incredibly fascinating conversation. Jazakallah uh, Sheikh Yusuf for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate you having me here, man. Thank you so much for coming out, and I've Thanks. learned so much just by sitting here. Um, I feel like I, keep, I feel like we can yeah, keep I going. Yeah, I know. I know. For sure. <laughs> Inshallah, you can provide this. I mean, you will, you will be providing more of this insight to other communities as well. But um, Inshallah, we can have you back again for another episode. Inshallah, it's not. I mean, it's not easy. It's a work in progress. You know, we don't claim to have all the answers, yeah. but definitely we have to move from the idea realm to the yeah. engagement, to the practical. Yeah, to the right. practical yeah. Um, make mistakes along the way. We correct right. each other. Yeah, absolutely, for sure, definitely. Um, well, Jazakallah khair once again. Uh, thank you so much uh, to all of our. Uh, listeners for tuning in Jazakumullah uh, khairan and uh, yeah Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh